This a mantra for every hood, every people, every tribe, every nation. It's time we live together, love together, and help one another. Yeah. I took a trip around the world to see what's under the sun. A lot of different people, a lot of tribes, a lot of tongues, a lot of differences, but one thing's the same. We all meet the same fate, no matter what you claim. Some of us got a little, some of us got a lot. Some of us in the middle, some of us getting got. Some of us got more than what's on the surface. Some of us messed up living without a purpose. And I can't relate to that, cause all my insecurities, I'm facing that. Learning about life and how I can make it better. Trying to be the change that could bring us together. Cause I know that's bigger than us. We don't wanna waste no time at all Don't wanna live like we did before, we did before Oh, we can make a difference for us Go so high that we won't ever fall Live for a greater purpose Promise it's worth it and it's If I ask you the question Where did you come from? How did you get your start in life? It may be very different than mine, and I'm sure it actually is. And all across the world, no one starts the race of life in the same position. And some people are more fortunate, and some people are less fortunate. But regardless of that, there's an opportunity. And sometimes the opportunities that are not there for you in starting that race, they can make you stronger, can make you tougher and make you strive even harder to create something that you want out of life. Today's guest on Dr. D's social network is Andy Seth, entrepreneur, father, son, a giver of peacefulness, guider of goodness in life. I had a great conversation with Andy and what he's up to these days how he feels about the direction of his life, his humble beginnings, and how he's created an incredible existence for himself and his family. Ladies and gentlemen, Andy Seth. All right, back in the network, this time with Andy Seth. Andy, thank you so much for being on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, you got it, man. Excited to be on it. Yeah, I want to learn about your story. I mean, uh, I looked up a little bit about yourself. I don't know too much about everybody I have on. I like to explore that as we're on. But Mm -hmm. you started out living in a hotel in Los Angeles, from what I read. Is that correct? Yeah, motel. Motel, uh, okay. The difference is the the doors face outward. (laughs) Oh, okay. I didn't know that was the designation. Well, that's my designation. If, if 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 the joints place... If the doors face outward, it tells you a little something. But the motel where we grew up um, was uh, was different than even today's motels where, like, for example, there were communal bathrooms. Um, mm. There were no bathrooms in the individual rooms. So it looked a little bit more like maybe a dorm in that sense. Okay. But it was a week-to-week payment motel. So what led you guys to living there, especially for such a long time? You were 14, right, when you all the way up to that time? Yeah, we lived there for 14 years. Wow. Um, what led us there? Well, my my dad was working in a store, a retail store. So both both of my parents are immigrants from India, um, and they're both highly educated. They've got both got master's degrees. But when you come to America, every every immigrant will tell you this: um, their, their degrees really didn't kind of quote unquote count in the labor market here. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of immigrants, like my own parents, have to basically 
uh, take jobs that they're either kind of overqualified for or have to redo their degrees or reskill. Um, and so my parents had come over here and uh, my dad was working in a retail store. One of his customers, uh, they became quite friendly. And um, the customer said, you know, I own this motel. Uh, I know your family, you're trying to build a family at the time I wasn't born. I'm the first, the first child. And he said, you know, I know you're trying to build a family. Um, I own this motel. Why don't you uh, take care of it? And in exchange, you know, you can have a roof over your head and you can still work full time and save up some money so that, you know, you can get on your feet. And that was really, that was really the, the precipice for this. And so the plan was that my parents would be there maybe a year or two, maybe three mm-hmm. tops. Uh, just depends on, you know, what they could earn and save and, and then, uh, and then move out. Well, um, that, that isn't what happened. Um, <laughs> what happened right. was we stayed there until the place was, uh, condemned and, and bulldozed when I was 14. Do you think you would have stayed there if it hadn't been condemned or bulldozed continued? Well, uh, not me personally, but, um, yeah, my parents, uh, so me personally, I, I ended up earning a full scholarship to a high school called Culver military Academy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that changed my life. They had scholarships for basically low income youth, um, and who are, you know, who appeared to be highly motivated. I was a pretty good student. And so uh, I got a full scholarship there. And at the time it was $25,000 a year um, for high school. And so I, I went away and I, I moved away when I was 13. Um, and, you know, obviously like I came back for a break or whatever. So that's it, the, the motel living officially ended when I was 14, but um, I went away to Culver and, uh, and that was it. You know, I, from there on my, my life, existed outside of outside of the motel gotcha and how would you say like how do you go back and view your parents based off of kind of how things were like your view of like immigration and growing up like that what are your thoughts as an adult looking back on that well there's i think there's been periods of time where i was quite ashamed of how i grew up and you know because of the schools I went to, I went to a, obviously a really high income, high net worth high school, and that continued to college. I went to Boston College on a full ride, and so um, you know, really none of my friends knew about where I lived or grew up. Um, it was just I just used to say L.A., and that was kind of you know that was good enough. Uh, and so, right, I, I think for up until really about my mid twenties, I would say. I reflected on it with a great deal of shame. Um, And then starting in my mid twenties until let's say till I was about 40, I'm 42 now. That was really a period of transition where I started to realize that the work that I was really interested in doing um, like my nonprofit, my philanthropic work, I was helping a lot of low income youth go to college on scholarships. And this was, basically my own story and just me helping more kids like that. And so I started to see that those kids would look up to me or at least know like things were possible for them when they would hear my story. And it, and it changed for me from being a a source of shame to a source of strength because I could use that to, you know, help motivate other people. Um, and I had also at that point kind of made something of myself, um, and so I think that transition in the mid twenties started to 
to to occur. And I say up until about 40, because just a couple of years ago, I would say I thought I had it pretty well licked and I had a good viewpoint, but there's, there's a third component, you know, like kind of two sides to the coin, but there's always that edge. The edge is that third side. And the third side is really the shadow self. You know, it's the shadow self is, um, is the other kind of less discussed uh, side to this. And the shadow was that a lot of uh, scarcity um, and, and a number of things pop up from my ego standpoint that used to serve me, but then really got in the way. Uh, an example of that would be um, I'm really good with uh, intuition and understanding people and reading them in psychology. I studied, I studied behavioral economics, which is a field of economics and psychology. So I'm quite good at the human component of it, but there's a shadow piece to that, which is um, my, my ego will want to use that skill to manipulate and manipulate um, or exploit. Uh, this is known if you ever read uh, Dolly Laskell's book, The Leadership Gap, she has these archetypes in there, a little bit like Jungian archetypes. And yeah. she calls them explorer, exploiter. Um, and so, so where I know I can get like in negotiations, where I know I can exploit someone's weakness, I'd say that's a good thing. But then there's times where um, I see someone's weakness in work, let's say, and instead of staying high level with them, I'll dive right into every minuscule uh, detail because now they've broken some trust and now I look at everything. And that's a shadow self, right? That's not, that's not a tool that I want to have deployed automatically. That's a tool I want to, be, I want to use at my disposal. Um, and so I think over the last couple of years, I've focused a lot more on ego and getting rid of, of not getting rid of, but having that ego's voice uh, get lower and lower and replaced by what I call the soul, but the true me so that I can make more clear and less ego driven decisions. Yeah, that makes sense for sure. How has that impacted your personal relationships with having that edge? Having the the shadow self, yeah. Um, well, mostly positively. Um, if if you know me, one thing that people will say is like that guy knows everyone. Um, and it, and I don't. I, I, but <laughs> but it appears that way because I have a really broad and a deep network. Just to give you an example, on November eighth of twenty nineteen, I launched my book. Um, so my book dropped, and I also produced an album. So my album dropped the same day as my book. And I held a, a launch party at a nightclub and I had almost 400 friends show up to that nightclub to celebrate the book and the album launch. Like just to give you an idea of that's how much love comes my way. It's not just like, I know a lot of people or my LinkedIn network is, is large, which yours, by the way, is like quadruple the size of my <laughs> LinkedIn network. Amazing work. <laughs> Uh, and I, and I do, and I do actively work, you know, and, and, and create content on LinkedIn. So like, you've done a, a great job there, Thank uh, you. Dude. but, um, but my, but my real life network, uh, they come through for me. You know, I got a lot of love from my people and, and people are down for me. I'm down for them. So like, um, the, the, the shadow self doesn't use, you know, I, I don't exploit my network. I've actually feed them a lot. I I'm very 
Yeah. Maybe overly careful to not allow my ego to creep in. So I rarely ever ask for anything. And so like, that's an, that's an example of how the shadow self affects my relationships in certain friendships and relationships. Like it's very easy to just ask for help, you know, Hey, I'm, I'm working on this. Have you had this experience? I'm struggling with this, et cetera. I'm notoriously bad at asking for help. And it's only recently in the last half of a year, let's say, um, that I've been identifying where I don't have answers. And instead of trying to figure them out myself, I reach out to certain friends who I think could be helpful. And it's amazing to hear their reactions where they're like, finally, I can like, you know, <laughs> add one to the scoreboard. It's like Andy yeah. hundred me zero. Like finally I can do something, but that that's because I don't want to burden people. I don't want to come off like I'm unknowledgeable. That's the ego. Um, you know, uh, I don't, there's a number of reasons. And so that shadow self prevents me from asking for help where really I would want to have the tool to be able to ask for help when I do need it. And it's not that I always default there, but you know, those, that's what I'm saying is like, everything is a tool. Nothing is how you are. And it's just a question of like, when do you use that tool? And, and, uh, this is one area where I'm just starting to discover the power of that tool. Other people are much better than me at it. In fact, I'm such, I'm so good at giving that I would be a terrible giver if I had a bunch of people like me on the other side receiving, <laughs> you know? Right. Right. I, I identify with that. I mean, I think I rarely ask for anything, especially with my network. I just, I like to spend a lot of time seeing how I could support them and uh, be a, an encourager and a cheerleader for their ambitions and their, and, and their dreams and the things they want to do. So, and I never want to come off as the person who's like, Hey, can you help me with this? Like how about, you know, but in many ways, sometimes I feel like I should do that more often. So I definitely identify with where you're, what you're talking about with that. Mm -hmm. um, so it's certainly, resonates with me. And I wonder like with your, with all of this, and you talked about the shame, have you ever talked to your parents about this, how you were feeling related to that? No. Um, they've talked to me about it. <laughs> oh, really? What did they say? Uh, so I was, uh, in a program, uh, it was a year long leadership program by the, by the, in the city of Denver, it's called leadership Denver. Other cities have this. And uh, the class elected me to be their class speaker. And I've, I've been, a have been, I've sp spoken and been asked to speak on so many occasions on different things, but I'm not a professional speaker, meaning I don't, uh, I don't hang my hat as a speaker and go get paid for that. If people ask me to, yeah. speak, you know, it just depends. So, um, but I, I say this because I, I got nominated by this class and this class, you know, was, is a group of civic leaders. Um, and, I told my story. My parents happened to be in town. Uh, they live in LA still. They happened to be in town. And so they, they came for this graduation, heard me speak. And afterwards, you know, there was like a standing ovation and, um, my parents came up and my dad was quiet. He's quite stoic anyways, but my mom was kind of, you know, like proud of me and, and, uh, always smiling. That's just her, but I could sense she was a little uncomfortable. And one of my classmates, named Amani. Uh, I'll never forget this because it was such a, such a powerful moment and so insightful of him. He came up and uh, introduced himself to my parents and, and he's, he's older than me. So he's got 
I think more wisdom than me. He would, even if he was my age, he probably has more wisdom than me. <laughs> um, but Amani's told my, told my parents, you know, you should be really proud of the job you've done in raising him. And I know that's not easy to hear your story put on public display like that, but know that inspires, it inspires a lot of people and he's got the gift of being able to do that. Um, but I, I know that can be difficult and really hard to hear because those days are behind you and you'd live in today. Uh, but, but know that we're all very inspired by the work that you've done in raising your kids. And I just thought that was so brilliantly said because it, it helped them start to understand that this didn't need to be a source of shame for them either. Hmm. Um, that there was a great gift in this. Um, but you know, the conversation that happened afterwards and at home and private was just, you know, it, it, a lot of their, our family doesn't know or didn't know the circumstances in which we lived when, when people moved to America, at least, at least back then they they're considered to have quote unquote made it just by the sheer act of moving to America. Right. And so, uh, and, and my parents would send, though we had very little money, they would send some money back to India to help with some of the family. And so they were perceived as having made it. And here I was, opening it up and showing that that wasn't necessarily quite the American dream that people had, had thought of. Right. And I think I read that you actually went back at some point to India, correct? To kind of this journey that you made. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've been back on a number of occasions for different reasons. Um, I had uh, in 2006, I had, taken the business that I was building here in the States uh, and I expanded to India, um, not not as an outsourcing situation, but as a revenue generating business out there in India, just expanding it uh, with Microsoft, which at the time was the number one market cap company in the world. So uh, I had a, a quite an quite a extensive work there. And then my recruiter uh, who helped me recruit all my staff is now my wife. So I had a re- had really good success nice. in in India, so I've I've been in been to India on multiple occasions. Like I said, for multiple reasons. Um, obviously, building a business out there, I was out there for quite a bit. And uh, but after the sale of my last business, um, the sale completed in at the end of 2015. I had a uh, three month um, basically retention in order to just make sure the the business transitioned well. Right. After that. Um, you know, I kind of celebrated. I had more resources at that time than I'd ever had. And, um, you know, I took my family, we traveled all over the world and did all these things, but there came a point in time where I didn't have the purpose, you know, what was the next thing I had kind of achieved what I thought of. And it was like the top of my frame and, uh, I didn't have like a new frame developed. And so, um, uh, here I was in a situation that's that almost nobody wants to be empathetic with, you know, like oh poor you, like you've got money now, and you know you're you're not poor you're, Andy, yeah, <laughs> right. But it, it's so that's a, it's a really weird thing because you know like it's hard to like talk about that during the time, um, and I'm sure people would have been empathetic to me, but uh, I wasn't willing to expose it. Um, I felt guilty, and so I started to feel really bad and. Um, kind of like what what is this you know i don't understand like how can i be how can i have attained this this these big goals and 
happiness is evading me. And like, I, I felt like a cliche. And so I went on a, on a journey, I went back to India, um, specifically where my family's from there. There's a town called Rishikesh in India. Um, it's the birthplace of yoga. If, uh, you've ever heard about the Beatles, for example, going back to India 50 years yes. ago, that's where they went. Um, it's a, it's the spiritual center of, of India and India's in many ways, a spiritual, uh, center of at least Eastern, you know, philosophies. Right. Um, and so this is the birthplace of that. And so I went there, met with my uncle who's, who's always been very close to me, very dear to me. And he's just an incredibly successful businessman. He's, he's successful by American standards. He's enormously successful by Indian standards. And, um, he somehow had this vibe where he was like, you know, if, if it all went away, you would just know he was cool with it. And I didn't, I didn't yeah. understand, like, how are you this successful? But that at peace, like, I don't understand the two. They always seem to be at odds with each other. Uh, like, if you want to be successful, you can never be satisfied with what you have. Or if you're satisfied with what you have, you'll never attain, you know, you'll never strive for more. It was like, I call it, you know, the choice between Forbes and robes. It was like, either you're going to be on the cover of Forbes or you're going to be in a robe. <laughs> Neither of those vibed with me. But I was like, right. but there weren't any living examples that I had either read or knew, but my uncle. And so I went to just spend time with him in his shop. And uh, when you're sitting for hours and hours and hours and hours on end in a jewelry shop, uh, yeah. you know, it's not like there's a huge flow of traffic in a high-end jewelry shop. His clientele is, most, is almost exclusively international. So there's really no foot traffic. Um there's people that schedule appointments and they fly in and they stay in the hotel that he built for them to stay in. So like, you know, we would sit there for hours and I would just ask questions. And fortunately, um, you know, we have that kind of a, a connection, uh, as business people, as family. Uh, but I also have the cultural connection and the, you know, the ability to translate what he's teaching me in both English and in Hindi and translate that into a Western mindset, you know, and, um, yeah. So like I, that, that was the big journey that I went on. And, and my uncle, his name is Goodu, is the main character, not sorry, not the main character, but the the guide in my book. Um, he's the only name I didn't change. He's, he was that, uh, that influential. And in so I took a lot of those Eastern philosophies, those lessons, simplified them, broke them down into a way that could help be more accessible. I've always found like, self-development tools through spiritual uh, means to be too foo-foo and right, right. not something I'd ever want to, you know, put into my toolkit. And when I started to, to understand what those tools really were and how to use them, I was like, wow, I can't believe I've avoided this for so long. The language around it just turns me off. So like, let me put language uh, that I speak and let me put it to that. And so the book is actually a parable and it's about a rapper who goes on a spiritual journey and, um, it's loosely influenced by a lot of different artists. Um, one being Nas where mm -hmm. Nas kind of wrote, you know, he, he dropped Illmatic when he was 17 and it was, uh, I mean, Nas has had hits since then, but could you really say Nas has ever produced something like that again? But nothing like Illmatic though. Nothing, nothing like Illmatic, like no. right? So, so it's a, a similar story of the main character in my book who, who dropped something early. It became a, an instant classic. But after that, like, yeah, his bank account grew, his fame grew, 
But was he really dropping those kinds of hits? Was he really that raw person anymore? Mm-hmm. Things changed. You know, you see a similar story with Eminem. There's actually a lot of rappers who go through this. Agreed. Um, yeah, right? And so so he went to India to do a concert and, and goes through just these major transformations uh, by learning these lessons. And they're the lessons that I learned. And at the end, he creates kind of a whole new vibe, a whole new sound. And the album I produced, I produced because I started to hear the sounds when I was writing it. I was like, when I was writing the, the that part of the book, I could hear this music. I could hear what I was describing. You know, I was describing like these Indian instruments infused over the energy and the backbone of hip hop beats and 808s. And I was like, yo, this is funky. I want this to like, I kind of want this to be out there. And there's some songs like that, like Eric Sermon's React. Yeah. Uh, there's samples and songs like Uchiwali. There's yeah, Jay-Z and Punjabi MC. But like, there's not a lot. And for, for a guy who's Indian, who was raised in a hip hop culture, like I wanted there to be more of it. And so I produced an album that, is a soundtrack to the book. So every chapter uh, influenced each track. There's seven chapters in my book. There's seven tracks on the album. They're both named Bling. Each chapter is named the same thing as the track. Uh, the only difference is the book is written by my name, Andy Seth, and my album is under my artist name, A Love, A L U V, which can be streamed anywhere. So, like that, I, I created those, and that's the first that I know of book and soundtrack later we i found that uh logic did it for supermarket oh okay so 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 far it's me and logic i'm not saying i influenced them but <laughs> i'm in good company. logic on the path andy <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm, I'm in good company let's just say that <laughs> yeah yeah exactly what is it about uh it feels like a commonality of a person becoming very successful and what, whatever that means if that is amount of money or fame and recognition and this this sense of lack of still happiness for that is it feels like a common story we hear in america yeah um you're wondering what's why does that occur why do you think it's so common is in, in, yeah. in point of view for that yeah um it's common because if you if you think about it at its most fundamental the what it takes to be at you know a, a perpetual state of happiness or joy to be at a perpetual state like a constant state of just being happy uh those the the actions you would have to take to accomplish that are mutually exclusive to the actions you take to earn wealth so Ooh, explain that yeah so if if we were to map out a path towards building wealth, we would have, depending on the person, but we would have a certain path that looks like make more than you, uh, make more than you spend, invest mm-hmm. a piece of those savings, potentially start a business or make wise investments in the public market, then finally private equity and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, go after equity if you can in, in a large company. Like, right, there's a path towards building wealth none of those none of those steps or avenues have anything to do with the steps you you would take towards creating joy they might accidentally overlap at times mm. but when it's by accident and there's no intent to drive happiness 
it doesn't give you still the end result of happiness. It still gives you the end result of, of money. And money is a fantastic thing. I, I, I think this is like, uh, I don't know. I don't like downplaying the benefits of, of money as a guy who grew up without a lot of it. Right, um, right. I think there, it, it, it's, it's a vehicle to do a lot of stuff in life. Right. It, is it its final resting place as a goal? No, but it is, it is the, the vehicle that allows you to do things. And one of the things that it allowed me, this is my own journey, so I'm not going to say that this is for everybody, nor am I saying that it has to be this way. But for me to have enough space in my life where I could pause and I could start to learn more about these inner tools and I could uh, apply them and see what it looked like, I could start to meditate at a completely different level. My meditation practice uh, was almost nothing fits and starts for probably about seven years. Um, nothing ever stuck to finally getting something to stick twice a day for 20 minutes to now an hour and a half in the mornings. And I've been doing an hour and a half in the mornings for the last two, three years. So my meditation practice is a complete different level. All of that for me needed to happen when I had like the time and money to do that. Um, I, I could not build that into my workday because I, A, didn't understand the value of it. One of the reasons why I'm out here mm -hmm. talking so much about it. And B, even if I had understood the value, um, I'm, I saw how I prioritized my life. And I prioritized other things over that kind of happiness. And, um, and it does take real work. So I think that's why it's so common because the steps to take towards having that kind of that piece, um, I call it flow because I feel, and, and people can have their own definition, but I feel like happiness is temporal. Joy might be a little bit more of a permanent state, um, but can you always be in it? Uh, debatable. Um, yeah, right, definitely right? Debatable. I think the goal would be to be in it as much as possible. Um, but there, and there are certainly people who are more expert, therefore they can be in that level of presence 16 hours a day, whereas somebody else might be in it for 16 minutes a day. Right. So, so there's certainly degrees of this. Let's not throw everything out. But, um, but I, I look at it and think of flow because when you're in flow state, you are working on something that's slightly challenging, but all of your faculties are in that very present moment and you lose the sense of time completely because you're so enveloped in whatever you're doing. That is this blissful feeling because it's hyper presence. There's nothing that's able to distract you. Um, and a lot of people get into this through sports. They can get into it through video games, through music, um, writing, but you can also actually train yourself to get into flow. I, I teach quite a bit about this. And so the book was really, what are the steps needed that will help you do both that will help you be able to have, to build the wealth and stay ambitious and highly driven. Cause I'm not at all the guy that says like that stuff doesn't mean anything. No, I'm definitely the guy that says, yeah, it means a lot. So how do you keep pursuing that at the same time 
How do you create flow in your life so that you're in a in this channel of like hyper intense presence, working on stuff that you're vibing and feeling that bliss? Like, how do you do that? Because one feeds the other. When you're in that kind of a, a creative state, the level of creativity and productivity goes up 5x. This is proven by by studies. This is not just me um, you know, saying this. And what we know is if you can get into flow state, let's just say one day a week, you can do a week's worth of work. It's so important, in fact, that I teach flow state to all of my team, my leadership team, my agents, everybody on my team. And between eight in the morning and noon, there are no meetings allowed. There's no Slack. There's no email. There's no phone. There's nothing. It's flow state time for everyone so that we can get more. So one of the secret weapons of how we've over doubled the size of our of our business during COVID is that we've been focused heavily on keeping people in flow state because of how much they can create. So it generates wealth, but it also gives you as an individual and as a team that feeling of just being in the flow. And like when you're in flow, you're you're good. Like you're you're good. That's where you want to that's where you know you feel that that good vibe. And so, you know, that's that's at least what the book teaches, but we also practice it in the business. It's fantastic. I think another thing I resonate with, I remember the first time I learned about this was the researcher uh Chiksimihai mm-hmm. who brought it to the forefront. Yeah. yeah. You know? And uh so I like yourself, I've taught it many times. It was a big part of my doctoral work and things of that mm-hmm. nature. So I certainly am very much into that. And I feel the same way. I think that um, you know, I get a lot of people want to talk about meditation and flow. And I said, Well, if you really think about it, you can achieve that in many different atmospheres. I mean, for me, my podcast, I produce it constantly. I always feel like I'm always in the flow when I'm doing podcasts with people because nothing exists. Mm-hmm. At that time, except for what you and I are doing right now. Right. And I chose this platform where there's waves going along. That waves feels very like it just you get you get sometimes you get stuck on looking at the wave and the forms and, and the voice and what's coming up. And you just start channeling the state with that. Mm-hmm. So I think that's very yeah. important. Talking about flow and being able to and especially in today's world, right, where there's so much distraction going on for people and they're being pulled in many different directions. So I think that's excellent. But I really was thinking about too, this dichotomy between happiness and wealth. And I'm not sure a lot of people have thought about it this way, um, that that one the, the thing that makes one thing one thing is maybe not the other. Now, would you say, what if somebody says, well, I need to maybe make more or less to have more flow in my life. What if somebody presented that to you? That they need to make more? Maybe that they need to, maybe they were saying like, this is just hypothetical. I don't know. Just throwing it out. Say, hey, you know, I'd rather make less and spend more time in this other area that will make me feel more joy and happiness. Oh, oh, I see what you're saying. Um, Yeah, that sounds like a false dichotomy. Um, The this is what we're unfortunately culturally taught, which is that there's a trade-off between money and happiness. What I'm saying to you is there's not. You can make it that way. You can make it that way, but you can also choose to not make it that way. True. And to not make it that way 
was really hard for me to understand and learn. I'm, t- I'm telling you, it took 40 years of my life before I really <laughs> right. grabbed the concept. And it was so powerful that I turned it into a book. That, that goal of being able to have money and happiness together is completely attainable. And it's what I work on. It's what I, it's what I teach my own team. It's what I work for myself. Like this is a flow state for me now, but it wasn't before. Had I learned the tools earlier in a way that resonated with me, this is the key, right? Cause mm, yes. like I said, there's people that teach this stuff that I'm teaching. It's not like it, there's not there. I mean, the, the origin of what I'm teaching comes, goes all the way back to uh, the yoga sutras and Pantanjali. And like, right. there's plenty of people who have taught this stuff. It's just that they haven't taught it in a way that like made sense for me. I, I wasn't going to give up material possessions. I wasn't going to give up the pursuit of breaking poverty. I wasn't going to give up the goal of buying my parents a house so that they could live and retire and not worry in their old age. Like I wasn't going to give those things up. So like anything that contradicted that was a non-starter for me. It was non-negotiable. There's no way I was going to go down a path that didn't take care of myself and my family, period, end of story. And I had no safety net. So a lot of the advice that was coming was from like, you know, I mean, let's just call it like just like hot white chicks talking about how Zen they are. Like, cool. Like, good for you. But like, we don't have the same starting place. Yeah. Like, you know, you, you started off in a different place than me. So like your advice sounds good, but I can't follow that or I'm going to wreck myself. Like I'm telling advice for people that have got backgrounds like me, or at least understand that same, that same drive. You know, a lot of people that still have money still have that same kind of hunger, right? And they use their, their finances and their privilege to advance even more. Fantastic. But they've still got that drive. I'm talking to those people, the ones that have just this insatiable hunger, man, this appetite, this intensity. How do you be that level of intense and that at peace? That's who I'm talking to. Yes. Right? It's easy to be like, yeah, I'm just going to tone it down and like, you know, kind of float through life. And, you know, if I don't make as much money, that's fine. At least I'll be happy. No, you won't. You, you, No, you won't. I bet you you won't. Here's why. Because you're still not doing anything for the happiness. Money was never an impediment to begin with. It's your actions that were the impediment. So like if you're not changing your actions and now you're taking less money, all you got is less money. Right. Now, what do you say to somebody that's, um, and I've seen this many times, and that is just working like crazy. Everything is literally about the accumulation of wealth. And it's just running a race without any time for focusing on building the happiness element of that. How do they break that cycle? Or what do you think about that? (laughs) I mean, if that's, if they're happy with it, go for it, right? Like, but but I think what we're what you're implying here is that they'd be unhappy if they're. Right, what happy, if they're saying that? I'm just yeah. I'm just thinking about different scenarios and things. If they're just yeah. grinding, 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 they look miserable. They look stressed out all the time. That doesn't seem yeah, like happiness. It's even more nuanced, Darian. Right? Like there are people who look happy, who look like they're having a great time, but deep down are sad that they don't have really good friends that they can count on or that right. their friends that they used to have aren't as close to them as, anymore or the kids that they used to love and that they raised 
now are disrespectful to them or the spouse that they what was on the journey with them is no longer the person that's their life partner like that's really what happens like if we want to really talk about what it looks like to be miserable with money it's not as obvious as a disheveled rich person it's not scrooge mcduck yeah. right it's it's actually that you have relationships that suffer and the greatest right. of all is the relationship with you with your own self and what i mean by that i'm cuz i'm i like to i don't ever want to come off like foo foo here when i say a relationship with yourself i'm talking about you feeling you actually having the feeling that you are at peace and at one with this universe a feeling just like you can feel happy and you can feel horny like just like you can feel that you actually felt what it's like to have that joy yeah that that is what is evasive for people it's it's the enigma how do i get there it's, it has nothing to do with them pursuing money or not pursuing money it has everything to do with are you pursuing the steps that it takes to build that type of flow in your life and if you're not taking those steps money is an irrelevant conversation right now when you mentioned the how it came off to you and then you know kind of the the not the foo foo thing Mm-hmm. Explain that a little bit because you know I I am seeing with people that there maybe is a bit of it more spiritual awakening or consciousness of people, yeah. and they're they're looking at spirituality maybe in a different way, but and maybe it's speaking to them differently. Explain that how that terminology is different for you that connects to you. Yeah, well, words are certainly portals into concepts, and if you choose to use certain words, your audience will either walk through that portal or not. Just to, just to give you a, a huge example of this, if I use the word God, mm-hmm. and if I said, I believe in God, there are going to be those who totally vibe with me. And there are going to be those who are totally turned off by that. Because God represents other things to them. But if I say, look, I'm just one with the universe, Okay, then that there's going to be people who that appeals to and who find that accessible because we know we're not talking about a deity. We're not talking about a religion, but we are talking about some sort of universal energy source and people vibe off of that. uh, And the people who may have vibed more on the word God may not or they still may. So the words that we use are portals into concepts. and if you use a word that's a blocker, you'll never transport those people into understanding the concept. And the concepts that are are the basis of these tools, these spiritual tools, uh, are so valuable. They're so valuable in, in modern day that if you can't ever go access them because the way someone's talking about them turns you off, you'll never get there. And originally language was the limiter, right? So like when I, just to come back to the yoga sutras by Pantanjali, that was originally written in Sanskrit. So if you didn't know Sanskrit or couldn't read a translation of Sanskrit to Hindi, you weren't able to get those lessons period end of story. It wasn't until people would be able to translate that. What I'm saying now is, yeah, it's written in English, but for a guy like me, meaning 
obviously multidimensional, but but a guy like me in that I grew up more around the hip hop culture. I am highly ambitious. I'm a business guy. I do believe in science. Like um, I'm driven and yet I still want access to this kind of this joy and peace. Like there's not a lot of people that, that sounded the way that I sound that were talking about it, but it's more and more like, even if you look at the hip hop culture, you're seeing a lot of people, for example, talk about consciousness. There's conscious rap, which never got really that mainstream, but you're seeing people go vegan or at least experiment with veganism because of uh, the benefits to their self, but also the health benefits, but also because of the concept of ahimsa, ahimsa meaning do no harm, you know, don't want to harm mm-hmm. the planet, don't want to yeah. harm animals. Like, I'm not saying like you need to do any of these things. What I'm saying is like hip hop starting to starting to pick up and has been picking up. There's movies. Um, you know, uh, Russell Simmons did a movie, I think it was called Heal or something like that. I forget mm-hmm. what it was. Yeah. The wellness one. Um, yeah. You know, so like hip hop is, is, is writing into this. You know, I think that there's a, there's a great uh, convergence between yoga and hip hop. And, and I just put words to it. I put words to the two and and why is there such a great pairing of hip hop and yoga? Like, even if you looked at um, like some yoga studios, like they're playing, they're piping in hip hop music. Yeah. Like why is there such a great pairing? There's a great pairing because yoga, yoga, first of all, is not the poses. Yoga is a lifestyle. It's just in, in Western world, the word yoga got interpreted as the pose. Yeah. Yeah. Right. The poses are technically asanas. Yoga is a lifestyle and it means literally translated means union which is song number six on my album and chapter number six in my book union is is what yoga means so when you look at yoga you're looking at um a lifestyle that uh how do i explain you're looking at a lifestyle where where people are um breaking suffering that's the lifestyle. Yoga is to break suffering, right? And to and to reach a level of uh you know, so oneness with this universe or or whatever you believe in. But yoga is this lifestyle to get you there. That's where the tools of the poses of asana and meditation and um ayurvedic living and and dieting or or nutrition rather, like all those components were meant to get you to be closer to realizing your own self, capital S. So that's yoga. That's the roots of yoga. The roots of hip hop are in suffering. The roots of hip hop were the voice of the unheard during the Studio 54 days when when uh, uh, Coke Rock and Herc were, you know, spinning at, uh, at little parties while Studio 54 was going off in, in Manhattan. Like these guys started basically taking break beats and then people would start to rhyme over the break beats. Right. And that's how you, that's how hip hop evolved. And it was rooted in the voice of, of the, those who were not represented. It's, it's got suffering. And so here you have one group who's always rooted in a, in, in a culture of suffering. Hip hop rewards. If you think about it, those who have suffered greatly and can yeah. tell that story well. And here, and on, in a yoga standpoint, they have this, they have the skills and the tools to end the suffering. And what you're starting to see is a lot of the OGs, now being like, yeah, like I know that was me back then, but like that's not me now. Now, right? Like, look at look at Snoop, look at the evolution yeah. of Snoop, man. Like, he's an OG, right? He's not he's not out there. Like, he 
he did a show with Martha Stewart. He's talking exactly. about right. He's talking about helping the community. But look at a young buck like Nipsey, right? Rest in peace. But like Nipsey was out there talking about ownership, doing that, right? You you got a lot of people. Even Kanye. Kanye might sound crazy. Kanye is a little bit right, like in, yeah. in, in the sense that like he's got he's got some wild things. Sure. But at the same time, Ye's got some really really solid ideas around ownership, around what the stuff that Dame Dash probably influenced him on. Right. right. So like you, you've got a lot of uh, of convergence between these two cultures and I just put a voice to it. There wasn't anybody from my standpoint who put a voice to it in a way that I would listen to the message and hear and be like, you know what? I want to go learn about that. And I'm hoping that by somebody hearing me today that they hear this and they're going, you know what? Like I'm interested in learning more about this. Right. So let me do a check out, check out what he has to say. And for people that are that are saying like, you know what, I would like to do business with somebody like that. Cause that's actually one of the things that's happened is you start to attract people of a similar vibration, right? Yep. That's what I'm putting out there, right? Like I'm putting out this, if you're a founder or you're a chief revenue officer or you're a marketing person or whatever, um, you know, I'm, we provide services that help them. We provide those kinds of marketing services and customer service outsourcing services, but there's other competitors, but if this is the right frequency and we're vibing, like you'll come and contact me, right? And that's that's why I put this message out there in the world is because I know it will bring more people into these tools that they otherwise may not ever go and get. And the people that need it most are are living, in, you know, have a lot of pain and suffering. And I just know like this can help them. It helps me. Most definitely. I like, I like what you're saying about the frequency vibrations and how someone receives something. And it may that may not be that they're not into it. It's just, you're not speaking the language that they understand for it. With yeah. That. And yeah, I like totally. the understanding about hip. I'm a big hip hop person. My brother's actually a professional musician, hip hop, conscious, motivational hip hop. It's what he does full time. He's awesome at it. He too should, should connect sometimes. I think you would vibe on, all the eras of hip hop. He's an awesome dude doing great things. Um, but how some, how you speak that. And I think sometimes people come at people with one idea or one way of doing something instead of understanding that there is a nuance of finesse to speaking to people and how they will receive that information. Mm -hmm. And how do you see yourself? You're 42. I'm 42. Same golden age here. You know, yeah. uh, so I think it's great to be in my forties. I love it. I'm into it. You know, yeah. um, where do you see yourself going from here? Learning these lessons that you've taken from your entire life to where you're at right now. Where do you? Where would you see things going? Where'd like to see things going for yourself? Um, I mean, the the number one goal for me is self realization. So if if we mm -hmm. just talk about my own purpose in life, um. That is what it is. It's it's to realize the full potential that I have to really become much more at one with, uh, you know, like the, the have that feeling of being connected to everybody, everything, that oneness, um, getting past the ego into ego dissolution. You know, like that feeling, as much as I can live in that feeling is what I'm after. Um, and then all things basically are along for the ride. <laughs> so yeah, if we look yeah. at, you know, if we look at, uh, what do I think my life looks like from a family perspective? Well, 
I would like to remain married to my first and only wife currently. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We've been married for 13 I'm sure years. I'm just glad too about that. <laughs> yeah. You know, like I would love to continue to stay married uh, and have that as like our life. That would be a huge success for us. Um, it's been a, it's been successful for 13 years, but like at the same time as anybody who's married knows and anybody who's not would still know it, it takes, it takes work. So I would like to have this pursuit of realizing my own potential, but not lose my marriage, not lose, you know, at a sacrifice. And there's so many people, so many people who become very disenchanted with what they'll call like kind of the material world mm. uh, that they live within themselves and can't exist in this, in this material world. And they're wrong in that they're, I'm just pl- plain saying it. You're wrong. You're, you're making a grave mistake. Um, Life has tremendous purpose. Uh, there, you don't have to have a nihilistic view that everything has no meaning, right. uh, and therefore you should just go internal. Um, so for me, external would be that with my wife. It would be to have I have two kids; they're seven and five. It would be to raise kids that love me when they're adults. I look at a lot of really successful people, and their kids talk mad smack about them. Mm. I'm like, yo, like. Those are the little babies that you raised and they talk smack. Come on now. Like you hear just in my own talking about my own parents, you hear the love, the reverence, the respect that I have for them. And the, the circumstances under which we lived weren't maybe the greatest, but that doesn't reflect on their love. That doesn't reflect on my relationship with them. That's what I want. I want my kids to have a loving relationship with me just as, as much as I will love them as when they're adults, when they have like no choice, when they, or when they have, sorry, when they have full choice right now, they have no choice. They got to learn. Right. 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 When they have full choice, I want them to love me. And, and then, uh, I want to make sure that, you know, I've got a, a tight crew of friends still that provide social support, um, allow me to be creative and expressing myself, something that you can't do as easily with friends or sorry, with family. Family gives you unconditional love and acceptance, but friends give you the ability to try on new things, new creative expressions. Uh, so friends are very important. They're actually critical to getting into flow state. Um, we could talk about that some other time, but uh, that kind of social support would be vital. Um, I would like to continue to keep good care of my health, You know, working out, meditating, eating right. And then from a business standpoint, um, I, I see my new frame as uh, implementing these tools into business to make them my competitive advantage. The name of my company is flow. So like, I'm not playing around with this concept, right? This is the, that's the whole name of my Mm -hmm. company. Um, We're looking to build a portfolio of companies under this brand where there's two things in common with all of them. One will be that we use these tools of getting into flow states as a strategic advantage to creativity and productivity. Number two is that each one of my businesses has apprenticeships. My current business has an apprentice. We're actually graduating an apprentice in six days from now. Um, and uh, apprentices are, are the, my apprenticeships are designed for low-income 18 to 24-year-olds who are not in college, not going to college. So don't they don't have great career aspirations. Um, but we put them through a full-time job plus uh, curriculum for the, for the, through the apprenticeship curriculum. So in two years, they're making 40 grand or more and have broken poverty with a career path. And so all of my businesses will have apprenticeships as well. 
So I see myself using the things that I've learned and benefited from as business advantages. And with that, you know, anybody who works with us, they get the benefit of a tremendous amount of creativity and productivity, which lowers their cost, gets them better results. But also every dollar they're putting in is helping a low-income youth be able to break poverty because that mission is baked right into my business. So I, I look at the things that I care deeply about and figured out how to turn that into a competitive advantage so that I still fuel that, that side of me that's a gamer that wants to still play this game of life and business. And I like to compete. I like to win. I like to be the best. And I've just figured out a way to bring those together. That's beautiful, man. I mean, you sound like you're really, you are a type of person who's seeking, actually seeking self-actualization yep. in that sense. And which is... um an incredibly beautiful thing to hear because it's not always the case. Um, I got to tell you, it's been very pleasurable for me to hear you talk and um, espouse the different things you're into and your journey and your life. I appreciate you spending time with me, Andy. Yeah, likewise, man. Thank you for asking the good, honest questions too. Yeah, of course. And uh, I look forward to following back up with you and connecting with you. And uh, just thanks for being on. It's, It's honestly, it's a real pleasure. Yes, likewise. Appreciate you. So let me ask you something. How do you get your news? Because I know you want to stay informed with what's going on here in the world. There's so much going on on a regular basis. And it's something that's been a problem for me personally. And I've been searching and searching and searching. And finally, I found a news source that I think all of my listeners are going to love. It's called The Donut, or The Dose of News Useful Today. The founder and CEO, Peter Nowak, is a good friend of mine, and when he turned me on to it, I was just blown away. Finally, a daily news source that delivers succinct and factual news about all the world's occurrences, and it's an easy access to finding things that you just want to get information about. And it also serves up a lot of positive news stories that you won't hear anywhere else. It's your daily reminder that there is good in the world, even if it doesn't feel like it sometimes. So, get the donut. Stay informed. It's 100% free. You can unsubscribe anytime. Visit thedonut.co or text donut to 66866 to sign up today. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dr. D's Social Network. Make sure you listen to future episodes. Also, please make sure to rate and review My Dad's Show on Apple Podcasts in the Rate and Review section. Thanks, everyone.